Before we get into the message, we, of course, are in the book of 1 Timothy on Sundays, unless Pastor Terrence is in the pulpit where he's walking us through the Proverbs. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there now. We're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to cover verses 3 all the way to verse 11. Some of it will be a review, considering where we were two weeks ago. Plenty of it will be brand new. And I'll even forewarn you that there is a mini sermon within the sermon. In fact, where the Lord led me in regards to marriage, I'm going to spend a little bit of time teasing out some of the thoughts that the Lord led me to, and I hope it's encouraging for all of us here, considering each of us are part of a family of origin, and whether or not we're married, moving into marriage, perhaps you think that you're on your way out of a marriage, I pray the Lord's voice speaks to you personally, and that we would all make application in our individual lives. I'll tell you another intimate thought I've had And I say this with such sincerity. There might be some people in this room that aren't gonna make it through 2024. What lies ahead in the spiritual realm, and you can see pictures of it in the physical realm, what's happening in our country, what's happening in our world, you cannot put that evil back in the box. And I am committed to the word of God in such a way that I'm going to preach and teach it even if it causes offense to where some people are. And I guess what I'm trying to say is as the world accelerates, you can expect your pastor is going to accelerate. And through 2024, I just have this impression that some people aren't going to be lasting. They're not going to last here. We're not in it for comfortable Christianity. We are in it for the Great Commission, which is discipleship. I saw a quote recently that was true. We either disciple the nations and the rulers or the nations and the rulers will disciple us. So with that being said, probably no better way to start a message than watching Braveheart. How about that? Let's get to it. What are we gonna do against their cavalry? That would be their soldiers on their horses. A cavalry of that size would mow down an army of our size. So we're gonna make spears. Spears as long as a man. Twice as long as a man, you've seen the movie. Here's the scene. They're all standing, holding the line. And here comes the cavalry. And William Wallace is commanding his soldiers and he's saying, Hold, hold, and you can imagine the panic that's setting in. The horses and the soldiers with their spears and their swords are coming quick. Hold, and at the last minute, now! And they all lift up these long spears and poles. And what I see in that physical battle scene is exactly what the church should be demonstrating in the spiritual realm. See, the Bible says when the enemy comes in like a flood, it is the Spirit of God that lifts up a standard against the enemy. And the standard is the truth 
The standard is the gospel. The standard or the sword of the spirit is the word of God. Imagine, can the enemy of darkness push back a church who is willing to hold the line of truth and hold up the word of life? All right, so we are living in the days of deception. Our times have been marked by defection, deception, and demonic doctrine, if you remember that from two weeks ago. Yet in the midst of the spiritual battle, as the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord lifts up a standard against the enemy. That standard is a banner. The Psalms say there's a banner of truth. And when we lift up the word of God, when we lift up the gospel, when we understand what it means to wield the sword of the spirit, I am convinced that standard, you ready for this? Exercises demons. No, not like the movie, The Exorcist, but the word of God, true to the definition of the word exorcism, you ready? Drives out darkness. The word of God exercises demonic doctrines. When you're a part of a healthy body that is teaching the scriptures and the full counsel of God's word, you better believe darkness and sin will flee. But not just exercising demons. How about the other form of exercising? And I'm playing with some words here. Exercising ourselves towards godliness. It's part of the passage this morning. So by way of review, let's orient our hearts and minds to the text, 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning again in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, defection, giving heed to deceiving spirits, deception, and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared, cauterized, hardened, desensitized with a hot iron. Verse three, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now these verses are the basis of saying a blessing over your meal. So there is a biblical origin to praying before you partake a meal. You are thanking the Lord for the meal that you are about to eat. Verse four tells us every creature or creation has a sanction from God and is good. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. And all my carnivores said, amen. Right. Say it again. <laughs> no offense to my herbivores. You see, at this time in the first century, you got to connect verse three with verse two. What was one of the doctrines of demons? There was this prohibition on certain foods, and rightfully so. Remember, there is a Jewish root, Judeo Christian, as we say it. The Jewish faith, according to the Levitical law, had a prohibition on certain foods. And the reason God 
gave them a prohibition on certain foods is that he was sanctifying his people. They were to be set apart from the nations. It wasn't so much about dietary restrictions as much as it was about holy sanctification. There was clean and unclean, and the Lord was drawing a distinction between the two with Israel, kosher or unkosher. Now we know that the dietary restrictions that have Hebrew roots have not passed into the New Testament or the New Covenant. We know that because Jesus himself said in Mark 7, you wanna know what defiles a man? Not that which goes in his mouth, that which comes out his heart is what defiles a man. This is what Jesus said. And then if you remember in Acts chapter 10, you have Peter, he goes onto the roof and he's praying. It says in verse 10, he became hungry and he wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open up and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and the birds of the air. And the voice came and said to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And in this, coupled with other scriptures from the New Testament, we see there is no prohibition on any forms of food. Now, there's reasons to have dietary restrictions. There's reasons to not eat certain foods for health reasons, but that's a right of conscience. According to Romans 14, we have to be mindful of everyone's right of conscience. The mature believer is actually the one who is able to forego on perhaps things they enjoy for the weaker believer who might be offended by the mature believer's liberty. Is that making sense? Homework assignment, read Romans 14 in its entirety on your own, and you will see how we're to conduct ourselves when it comes to the things that are gray areas in the faith. Judaism is a root influence here with the confusion around food. The pagan world also contributed to the confusion around food. The pagan world would use meats and sacrifices to idols. So when it came into the Christian realm, people were like, well, we can't eat those meats that were sacrificed to idols. And here, what Timothy is being told by Paul is that don't allow the external become a doctrine, which is demonic, when it's legalism or can lead to liberalism or in the case of the first century, you might not remember these terms, asceticism. Asceticism is severe self-discipline. Asceticism is a way or lifestyle of avoidance of all indulgence. In other words, what entered the church, this self-discipline in such a way that, you know what, I'm gonna discipline my flesh in such a way I can't experience any pleasures of life, including foods and even marriage. Asceticism and Gnosticism are cut from the same cloth. Gnosticism was one of the lies in the early church that had a dualistic approach to life. For example, they believed that the body or the physical realm or the material realm was inherently evil. And only the spirit mattered. Only the spirit was eternal. So what happens with that logic is that they would either have severe 
self-discipline in such a way as if that was holiness unto God, or they would do whatever they wanted with their body, justifying that, you know what? The body's evil and only the spirit matters. It basically was spiritual progressivism, progressing beyond the boundaries of the Bible. They thought that abstinence from the physical realm somehow made them more spiritual. That's what was happening here. Again, to each their own with dietary restrictions. I'm not talking about fasting. Fasting has spiritual implications, abstaining from food. Not saying anything about that. I am saying there's no spiritual reason in the Bible to abstain from certain foods. Did you know there's a movement called the Hebrew Roots Movement and they're making their way back to Levitical law and that is why they're, they're forbidding any forms of food that were prohibited in the Old Testament and really it's just going back to the Old Covenant. Now I know there's allergies, peanut allergies, And you have to be mindful of what you eat, unlike the pastor who sat with an old congregant at her table was a bowl of peanuts. He asked, may I indulge? She said, sure. By the end of the conversation, he realized he had eaten every peanut. He apologized on his way out. Forgive me, I didn't know I was that hungry. She said, it's okay. Ever since I lost my teeth, all I could do was suck the chocolate off them anyway. See, whatever the Lord, and here's the point, has sanctioned as good, the enemy seeks to sabotage and make bad. That's the point. If the Lord has sanctioned it as good, and that's why Paul, he wrote multiple times in various ways, whether you're eating or drinking, whatever you do, do it unto the glory of God. And the enemy, he, of course, wants to sabotage and make it bad. Now, as in the case of forbidding to marry, what was that all about? Now, what I'm gonna do here, I'm gonna tell you some terms that you probably don't need to know in the grand scheme of life. Here at Landmark, we believe in verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, exposition of the scriptures. And, here, and here's why. You have to teach the scriptures contextually when you're walking through them. I spend a lot of time before we even get into a new book explaining to you who the author is, who the recipient of the letter is, what the culture was like, all the dynamics that were surrounding the early church, because all those details matter. What we call that in biblical interpretation is exegesis. You ever heard of that term? To exegete the text. It means I am literally thinking of the word exit. I am taking the text and allowing it to lead me somewhere. I'm exiting it. Conversely, there's a term called eisegesis. Think of isolate. Eisegesis isolates the text. A lot of times, a certain passage can be isolated and detached from the context and taught or misappropriated improperly. Topical messages are often derived from eisegesis. Not all eisegesis is unbiblical. Now you're probably like, what are we talking about? Exegesis, eisegesis, what type of Jesus? There's only one type of Jesus. What I want to show you is I'm going to take the term forbidding to marry. 
I'm going to exegete it. I'm going to teach it in proper context. And then I'm going to intentionally eisegete it. I'm going to isolate just that phrase, which led me on that mini sermon I talked about. And we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the implications of biblical marriage. Are you ready for it? Here's my outline. We're going to look at the forbidding of marriage, the forgery of marriage, and the forsaking of marriage. Why? Because where marriage is not set apart, the family begins to fall apart. And if the family begins to fall apart, society begins to fall apart. And any nation where families and marriages begin to fall apart, soon that nation will eventually fall. History records that trajectory. This is why this message matters. Now, I need you to frame your mind with this basis before we move on. Marriage is a holy institution of God between one man and one woman. Genesis 2, Matthew 19. Since God designed it, God defines it. It's a holy institution. Let's move a little bit further along. Marriage is a healthy foundation for building a family and is the bedrock of society. Make no mistake, Psalm 127. Holy institution, healthy foundation. And finally, marriage is a humble reflection of God's covenant relationship with his people, Ephesians 5. There is no higher and more intimate relationship in all of the world than between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And that became the relationship by which God chose to reflect his covenant relationship with his people through the gospel. So we must tread seriously through the text. The forbidding of marriage. What was the demonic doctrine of forbidding marriage? In the first century, I talked about these terms, asceticism, Gnosticism. It led to what was known as monasticism. In a word, monkhood. Men and women would go into mountains and caves and live isolated lives. And they reasoned that they could not indulge or experience the pleasures of life, including marriage, so that they can receive an extra blessing from God. That is a work-based faith. Monasticism or monkhood eventually led to, in the third and fourth century, doctrines in the Roman Catholic Church which forbid their clergymen and the nuns to marry. Now, we are not talking, biblically, of the gift of celibacy. God has called certain people to singleness, but it's a calling, and you must be certain God has called you to it. But the reason he's called anyone to singleness is so that they can dedicate and focus more time on the kingdom. Paul addresses that. But to forbid marriage in the sense that the Roman Catholic Church did and many cults do. You know, that's like one of the baselines of cult life. The cult leader often indoctrinates their followers, whereas marriages that came in are told they must give up their wife. And there's always a sexual perversion to that doctrine. It's demonic. Now, how did all this unfold through the ages? Let me tell you what I'm after. The forbidding of marriage to forbid what God allows 
is a pathway that leads to false piety, like a monk, or swings on the opposite side of this pendulum, sexual immorality, or the Greek word is pornea. Pornea is fornication, any sexual sin outside of the divine design of sexuality in a marriage. What do I mean by that? Well, forbidding marriage, let's just say for a priest, when they weren't called to singleness and they just entered the ministry and the doctrine said you cannot marry, for whatever reason, that abstinence led to a perversion, which generally speaking has led to wild sexual scandal in the Roman Catholic Church. And if you have Catholic roots, I'm not bashing Catholicism. I'm telling you general history, pedophilia and other sexual sins are the result of forbidding what God allows. But there's also this other forbidding of marriage that is occurring before our very eyes. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but every state has incentivized welfare programs and the benefits fall upon the home, usually when a mother with children does not allow the father back into the picture. Wait, you mean to tell me the state actually incentivizes welfare programs and applies massive penalties if the couple decides to get married? Why in the world would they do that? To not see that there's a dark force at work behind the scenes. The enemy knows that if he can tear families apart, if he can divide a marriage, if he can cause single parent households to attempt to raise the children on their own, Yes, it's possible. All things are possible in Christ. And God bless single moms and single dads. May he endow you with an extra blessing to do the work of two. And he will. I've seen it. But the consequences that have fallen upon our land because the government has sought to incentivize singleness. The kids are impacted while these programs are, of course, intended to help low-income families and individuals, their design greatly contributes to the decline of the family in America. Either by malice, you can call it that, is it intentional, or ignorance, the American welfare state is, on a whole, egregiously anti-marriage. Anti-marriage? Who would not want marriages to be healthy and vibrant? So now we just went from the church and the doctrine that would forbid marriage, went to the state and the unspoken doctrine that is forbidding marriage. And we, of course, moved to a different category. And what we see is the forgery of marriage. The forgery of marriage. What do I mean by that? Well, the forgery of marriage is this, to allow what God forbids. We just went from to forbid what God allows. Now we're moving into to allow what God forbids is a pathway that leads to deception and damnation. When I say forgery, you know what forgery is? Forgery is, of course, counterfeiting, falsifying documents, fraudulently copying, falsely representing someone else, either their estate, their authority, or signing a document without their consent. It's forgery. Now, let's put this together. 
putting any other signature than God's on a marriage is the forgery of marriage. God has one signature for marriage and it's male and female, man and woman, husband and wife. That is the only signature that, get this, is not just for believers. Marriage is sanctioned universally. Everywhere civilization flourished and thrived, it was because the marriage was between man and woman. And when the enemy was able to sneak in, creep in, and forge and put his signature on the marriage, Romans 1 is the culmination, listen, the culmination of humanity reaching its reprobate state. And what is the relationship that is recorded in Romans 1? It's that men would lay with men and women were laying with women. It's Satan's signature. Now, we all know that. In our land, we have legalized unholy unions. But that's not the only forgery of marriage that I'm going to address. There's another forgery of marriage, and it goes unaddressed often at times. The other form of forgery is when a couple is playing marriage before marriage. Playing marriage without the power and purity of marriage. It's couples who are moving in together before the holy union at the altar. And the justification that exists, well, I'm going to eventually marry them. It's couples that are sleeping together. Premarital fornication, pornea. I'm here to tell you there is a best in God's economy. And my responsibility is to always present the best, the absolute best, the pinnacle of God's best. And if every couple wants to reach that best, some of us might be down here and you're unwilling to hear the truth up here. And I've had people be offended by me saying, hey, if you want God's best, this is what it takes. This is the direction I want you to move in. So for young couples here, I'm asking you to consider where you are with the Lord. If there be any premarital sexual interaction, you cannot expect God's blessing upon your marriage. And I'm not telling you in a position where I was once engaged to my fiance, Sarah, where we had it all figured out. I mean, it was hard for her to keep her hands off of me. I mean, come on. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Don't ask her that. Yeah. But in all seriousness, to want God's best and not putting any other signature on the marriage, would each of us in this room, whether we're currently living with our significant other, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our fiance, I would advise, and of course, we at Landmark would love to sit with you and spiritually advise you on God's best and help you in making those decisions. There's an interesting dynamic that occurs. Before marriage, doesn't it seem as if whether it's flesh or there's an enemy driving the flesh, the enemy wants to get us together sexually before the marriage. And isn't it something the moment we get married, 
to married couples in here, it's as if that same force, that same flesh, that same enemy drives us away from our spouse. So before marriage, he's trying to get us together. After we're married, he's trying to drive us apart. See, we need the word of God to help govern our relationships. We talked about the forbidding of marriage in context, exegete. I moved into an area where I isolated the text, talked about the forbidding of marriage from the state. We moved into the forgery of marriage and its two forms, putting any other signature than God's on a marriage. Each of us have to search our own hearts with where we are. And I wanna land in a more important category, and it's the forsaking of marriage. And we are seeing, there are several things that are happening simultaneously and through the decades. The first is the marriage rate, the, the rate of marriage, how many people are getting married, is on the decline. That's one stat. At the same time, children being born out of wedlock is on the rise at an astronomical rate. And like I said earlier, the state intervenes and gets involved and they work overtime to keep those two people apart. And the children in that dynamic often suffer. Now we're gonna look at the forsaking of marriage. And there's reasons why at the altar we pledge our vows. Yes, in human form, as broken people, we still pledge our vows. Your vows may have went something like this. I blank take you blank to be my blank. To have and to hold for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, to love and to cherish. What's the final part? Till death do us part. This is the language of covenant. When we marry, we are engaging a covenant. Now I want to tell you what's happening in many Christian marriages. One spouse or both are not treating the marriage like a covenant. They, of course, begin to treat it like a contract. And to treat a covenant like a contract is a pathway that leads to unforgiveness and irreconcilable difference. Because you're not living up to your end of the bargain, I'm taking my goods and I'm going home. And the quit option, which has never been thrown out, is often the first option that we hold on to. And I'll tell you the truth, if you're in a marriage right now, and I get every one of us have uniquely different marriages, like a fingerprint, I'm up here giving you the generalization of what God's word says about marriage. I cannot properly exhaust every scenario of marriage in a message. So while I get each of us are coming with different frames of reference and context, I would never sit up here and tell you to not come talk to myself or Pastor Terrence or our congregational care team so that we can help you work out your marital strifes and your problems. But if for a second you think that you won't be able to find online or somebody out there who will affirm you where you're at and give you every reason to forsake your marriage, 
I tell you the truth, brothers and sisters, you will find somebody who will tell you what you wanna hear about your marriage. The question is, are you willing to hear what God wants you to hear about your marriage? See, the Bible is explicit. God hates divorce. And he doesn't hate those that got divorced. He hates the consequences of divorce. He hates what it does to the family and the children. He hates it and it breaks his heart. My intention is not to pull off any healed over wounds in your life. We know that there is no sin that Christ has not died for and forgiven us from. I'm thankful, personally. When my wife and I, in the first three or four years of our marriage, and the onus was on me as the man, we began to hit rocky places. And of course, I was able to justify in my mind that I was serving the Lord. She needs to understand that where I spend my time matters. And when I get home after a long days of work, I'm exhausted. Does she not see that I'm pouring out onto the people? And all of that was backwards. Ladies and gentlemen, your pastor is telling you, I got it wrong. And I came back from a Sunday service one day and my wife, Sarah, was gone. And she had departed and went to Florida with her sister. And all of my ideas of ministry came crashing down. And you know what we're both thankful for? right or wrong, however I conducted myself, right or wrong, however she conducted herself, that we had a family, a couple, named Scott and Amy Reef, who come to this church. And Amy was willing to tell Sarah the hard truth, that she has no right to forsake her marriage, biblically speaking. And Scott told me the hard truth that I needed to hear. And if it weren't for their voices of truth speaking into our marriage, we would not be approaching our 10th year. I think it's 10. I better do my math. <laughs> no, it is 10. 10 years with two precious gifts from the Lord. As you all know, Willow and Zeke. So I'm telling you that to say marriage is hard. And for whatever the reason the Lord has led me to this moment in this message for this audience, he wants us all to see how he values the covenant of marriage. If you think with me for a second, one of the major reasons that often find itself on a marriage or a divorce certificate, it says irreconcilable differences. That really covers pretty much anything. Now, the reason why the marriage relationship is so valuable to God is because he sees his covenant relationship with his people as unbreakable. And Christ calls himself the bridegroom. The church is his bride. Are we not thankful that what should have been irreconcilable differences? Did you know the only irreconcilable difference that actually makes sense is a holy God and sinful man, and sin is what separated us. If there was ever irreconcilable differences, yet the Lord Jesus Christ, 
decided to extend himself in mercy and grace, reconciling us unto himself. Now here's the punchline. The greatest love story of all time involved reconciliation. And your testimony and your marriage, wherever it is right now, I'm telling you, with prayer and putting your faith in Jesus and opening up your life with vulnerability, God is able to do the impossible. I know some of you are thinking even right now, your marriage is in a position and it cannot be recovered. And I'm telling you that is a lie from the devil himself. And it's gonna take work. And I can't put a timeline, but God's heart is reconciliation and restoration. They say, as Terrence taught years ago, that the moment a Navy SEAL makes up his mind that he's gonna quit the program, the percentages of him walking to that bell, right, Pastor Terrence, and ringing it and quitting the program are higher than the Navy SEAL who makes up his mind. No matter what they put me through, no matter what I'm about to encounter, I am not exercising the quit option. And they throw the quit option away. And I'm thankful that my wife and I have made a commitment together post our marital strife that we threw away the quit option. Come what may, we're gonna work this thing out. And that is why you need godly, biblical people in your life to hold you to account. I'm looking at the time. We're not gonna get to verses six to 11, and that's okay. I have plenty more thoughts to share. It seems as if the enemy is working overtime these days. And he wants to completely destroy families and marriages. And if the enemy is working overtime to do that, then I'm inviting this fellowship to work overtime to salvage and save what the enemy is seeking to destroy. And I don't know what that looks like. Each of us in our own context, we must first assess where we are as individuals. We must then be honest and assess where we are as a marriage couple. We, of course, need to be honest and look at our families. We need to assess where they are to where the word of the Lord is. We need to then as families in this room, I see couples asking you to find the time to enjoin your life to young couples and begin mentoring them and begin discipling them so that our family community here can be strengthened because the enemy is not going to relent. He's not going to stop attacking our families. I think the men in this room need to go first. Can make a case that where their men are strong in the Lord, those communities will be strong in the Lord. And where men are willing to lead their families in their marriage as well, the Lord does a very unique work in the wife, in the children as well. I know this is a serious message. I know that some of our marriages need prayer. And perhaps that's what the Spirit has required of us in this moment, right? So I'm gonna stop the sermon. 
I'm gonna ask the community to join me as we begin to pray over some of the marriages and families in this fellowship. Whether that's somebody in your row and you wanna turn and you wanna lay your hands on them and you wanna pray. Whether that's somebody that's in your family of origin and you wanna turn and you wanna lift them up. I think for the next few minutes, we're gonna do just that. We're gonna let the spirit close out this service as we pray for our marriages and our families. And I know this might be uncomfortable for some of us, right? But we've come out on a Sunday morning to experience God. You don't come out here to see a show. You didn't come out here to hear a good talk. You came out to experience the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm asking, as one of the pastors, that we would begin to pray for each other, right? Just as we are called to pray for our country and our leaders, why don't we begin praying for our families and our marriages? If you need to lay hands on your spouse right now, something you've never done, and just lift them up, would you do that? If you need to repent from how you've been treating your spouse, I think the Lord would honor that most of all. We need strong marriages. We need strong families. There's repentance for your history, make no mistake. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've been through, I'm here to tell you, you're looking at a pastor who was recklessly responsible for taking a life. And yet the Lord gave me his grace and he brought restoration that I know I don't deserve. And I'm saying, I don't care where your family or marriage is right now. Our God is a God that restores. Would you believe that this morning? Let's pray. So Father in heaven, I know that my plans and my preparation and my imagination of what Sunday morning would be like did not end like this. But your spirit has redirected us because you know the very needs of this fellowship. Father, forgive us. Forgive us. When we seek to have our own way, we just make things worse. We take things that you give us that are good and we make them bad. Whether it's selfishness in our heart, whether it's pride, whether it's sin, Holy Spirit, would you begin to first deal with us? Give us a renewed sense of your presence. Give us a new heart and a new mind. Cleanse us from our wicked ways, our disobedience, our attitudes that may be defiant. Forgive us for treating the covenant like a contract. To that end, Lord, I pray for marriages right now that are on the rocks, that are struggling. One spouse is already checked out. They're on their way out. And in their mind, they have every reason to abandon. So I'm praying that your Holy Spirit and your word would overwhelm them. 
they would recognize the relationship is not too far gone. Give them a sense of the consequences, the generational impact, the weight. Give them a a glimpse so that they would turn back and trust you to work out whatever it is that they are wrestling with in their spouse, in the marriage. Praying, oh God, the many testimonies that I know are true, myself and Sarah's included, that the quit option would be completely discarded in all of our relationships. And that like Jesus demonstrated, they was willing to overlook because that's what love does. Love overlooks. Love does not deny that there's issues. Love does not condone bad behavior. Love covers a multitude of sins. I pray for families, oh God, fathers and mothers, training up their children. I pray for wayward children. Would you bring them back? Wherever they are in life, however old they are, would you bring them back? Those children are yours before you entrusted them to us. Forgive us of forging our own signatures upon our relationships. Would we get right in your sight? Would that be the pursuit of our heart? Would that be the godliness that we exercise? praying for your protection upon this body, knowing the enemy wants to divide and sow discord in the midst of this community. I'm praying for the men, Lord, that you would stiffen our spines to stand strong. I pray that all of us would become more like Jesus. for our new families, God, that are having children. Would we come alongside of them? Would we encourage them? Would we be mindful of the stressors that come with becoming a new parent? Would we truly love each other? As Jesus said, he said, The world will know you are mine as disciples by the way you love each other, by the way we love each other. So God, I ask in the name of Jesus that what has been delivered this morning would be sealed by your Holy Spirit. 
and that each of us would take inventory and be willing to come back to the relationship that you've brokered, the covenant that you have with us. Would that be true for the relationship we have with our spouse? That is my prayer. And I thank you in the name of Jesus for hearing this prayer. And all God's people said, all right, all right. The question that I have is where do we go from here, right? I know we can go to the bathroom. I guess what I'm trying to say is before you are dismissed, don't leave here. If you're one of those families or one of those marriages and you need prayer, there'll be people up here that would love to engage you, would love to come alongside you. Don't do this alone. You can't do this alone. Bring it to the light. We will do everything in our power, right, Pastor Terrence, to come alongside of you and sit with you and walk with you through whatever it is you're going through. That is my heart. That is this church's heart. So with all that being said, since we're not dead, we're not done. We've heard it by God's grace. Let's do it. God bless you and you are dismissed.